Would you like to retire with enough? My name is Peter Guidry, and I am the host of the Retiring with Enough podcast. On today's podcast, I'd like to welcome Roger Whitney, certified financial planner and host of the Retirement Answer Man podcast. I personally started listening to the Retirement Answer Man podcast in about 2015, and I really enjoyed it. When Roger formed the Rock Retirement Club in 2018, I became a member of the first group. I've known Roger since about 2018, but I was finally able to meet him in person only about a month ago at the Rock Retirement Club meeting. Roger and the RRC were instrumental in my attainment of a chartered retirement planning counselor designation and also in the formation of the Retiring with Enough blog and podcast. Roger has been a practicing certified financial planner for over 25 years. He's the host of the award-winning Retirement Answer Man podcast. He's also the successful author of a book called Rock Retirement, A Simple Guide to Help You Take Control and Be More Optimistic About the Future. He's authored numerous financial articles, founded the RRC, and created the Agile Financial Planning Process. I'd like to welcome my first podcast guest and a genuinely nice guy, Roger Whitney. Hey, it's amazing that we only met uh, just this year in person. Yeah, yeah, that, I yeah. would not have thought that. It it was uh, it was really it was really fun uh, at the meeting, just interacting and meeting you know you and the rest of the the staff. And just a lot of the people that attended, it was a great meeting. It was very nice. I, I commented on that on the, the club website, but I, I really enjoyed it. It, it, it. When you get that kind of energy in a room, it just sort of carries everything with so many positive people on the same stage of life. It's sort of magical to me. So, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. It was, it was very nice. So just to kind of open things up, you are the retirement answer man. You, yeah. you started your career as a financial planner, but could you kind of describe the difference between financial planning and retirement planning? Yeah, the whole, I hear retirement answer man, it makes me laugh because I remember when I named the podcast that I'm like, in my head, who the heck am I to call myself that? And I just had to, I just uh, recorded an episode the other day where I had to correct an answer that I had answered incorrectly. So uh, it's a it's an aspirational goal. So financial planning, certified financial planning, you know, that's what I'm a certified financial planner, which is sort of the gold standard, at least with our industry of a certification. Uh, I call myself a classically trained financial planner. Because financial planning came from the financial world, came, and even more so came from the investment world. Because financial planning wasn't even really a thing as a profession before the 90s. I mean, it started mainly in the 80s when people started to think about their 401ks and invest money outside of 401ks and IRAs and all of that. And financial planning came from an investment focus. And I used to teach uh, the retirement planning segment for the certified financial planning curriculum for CFP candidates. And that's when I really started to recognize that the, the, the foundation of financial planning 
has influenced the entire process, which essentially makes it very investment focused and very, and very focused on the accumulation of assets because that's where the baby boomers and the, the majority of people were. They were trying to accumulate assets. And as I've walked the journey to specializing in retirement planning, it became very obvious that that classical financial planning framework focused on accumulation doesn't work as well for decumulation when you want to spend your assets, when you want to spend your money. And I think, and, and that really, it's very different. All, the whole dynamic of trying to create a decumulation plan is different than accumulation. And I don't think we all appreciate that near as much as we should. And I argue that retirement planning is a specialty. You think of a certified financial planner is a generalist, like your general practitioner doctor, right. yeah. probably a good way of doing it. Retirement planning is a specialty like a orthopedic surgeon or an orthopedic doctor might be a specialty. And we need to recognize that because you can go down a pathway of making suboptimal decisions for realizing a great retirement if you don't use a specialist. I know you were doing fine financially as a certified financial planner. What prompted you to, to go down the road less traveled to, to, to take a chance and, you know, move away from the easy path of certified financial planning and, and move into the less secure retirement planning space? How is it less secure? Let me argue that premise for a moment. Well, it, it was un, untested. I guess you could say that they were untested waters. And, I, and in my mind, that would make it less secure. Okay. Okay. Um, it happened mainly out of, I guess, in hindsight, it was a midlife crisis in that in my 40s, I was partner in a financial planning business with two other partners. We had 12 advisors. It had gotten to a point where I at least had a good income. I wasn't necessarily wealthy. I, mean, I wouldn't call myself wealthy now. Um, and I had, it, it sort of operated itself. And I came to a realization of, wow, this could be a great ride. I could, you know, do my triathlons and travel and go do interesting things and be able to provide for my family. That's sort of cool. It made me help a few people along the way. And then I had the realization of, well, heck, if I wake up in my 60s or 70s and say, oh, yeah, that was sort of fun. I provided for my family and did some cool things. But what could I have done was sort of the my midlife crisis of this isn't about having just a great ride financially and doing cool stuff. What am I supposed to be doing with my life uh, from a godly perspective? And And that's where I started to explore that. And I've just never stopped. And it caused me to professionally blow up my entire life. I started to specialize. I, the podcast that I've done, which is almost 10 years old, was it really a personal journey of me finding my voice and talking to a particular set of problems, in this case, retirement, which is a major life transition, one of the most stressful ones. And through that journey, it took on a life of its own and I ended up seeing the incongruencies in my life professionally and divested myself from my partnership and my firm and went on my own and, and redesigned my entire life. 
because it's what I'm supposed to be doing. I just kept leaning into what I thought I was supposed to be doing with my life. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. So you, you definitely have a much bigger footprint now. And obviously you've been very successful at that. You've reached thousands of, or hundreds of thousands of people, you know, through your podcast and club and the things that you've done, you've been very successful in doing that. Congratulations to you. But there are a lot of people who in my career, I, I've met and interacted with, and and they always talk about wanting to do those things. You know, I'd like to do this. I, I want to start my own business, but they think about it, but they never do it. They never really make that step. So tell the listeners about your journey from financial planning to becoming a retirement planner, becoming a business owner, an author, and an entrepreneur. Well, I've always been an entrepreneur of sorts, and I've always been a financial planner. I mean, I had my, you know, in the 90s, I basically traded tech stocks. So I wouldn't have called myself a financial planner then. This desire to start a business or do something new, it could actually be really dangerous, I think, Pete. Um, it, <laughs> right? It can be. <laughs> the grass is not always greener on the other side. And if you look at how, and I've, you know, I remember when we left uh, a major financial firm, my my two partners back in 2003, I was thinking about this the other day, that was, you know, 20 years ago. Um, my income went down by 80%. And I had a wife at home and two small kids, and we were under significant financial stress. And I so I did that transition in a not healthy way and almost blew myself up financially. And just because I am standing doesn't mean I had some secret sauce. It just means that I'm statistically one of the ones that did it. There are many, many people that have done the same thing and, and gone bankrupt. Right. So I appreciate that. And I'm aware of that. What I did was just kept iterating on what I was always already doing. Financial planning and retirement planning are very similar. I already had a client base most of them were going into retirement and I was exploring how do I serve them better in a more robust way. So it was iterating down the same thread of what I was already doing. So it wasn't like I was a financial planner and decided to go open up an auto shop or become a dentist. It was a it was a natural thread of specialization within within an industry I had already put in the reps to become competent in and to have the skills in. So it wasn't like I was starting from ground zero. So I used all this career capital experience and education that I had and just extended it and focused it. You think of it rather than be like a big light beam and a lamp, which is what I was as a financial planner generalist, I just took all of that energy and focused it into a laser on a specific problem that people have. And then I dove deeper and deeper into the issues they were dealing with. So I think that's a healthier way to do it than we typically might do on an entrepreneurial journey. You had the, the courage, because it does take a lot of courage, courage and willingness to, to explore that option at at uh, personal peril, <laughs> as you as you and financial peril, as you just stated. And you, you know, know what the spark was 
for the people that I was serving, Pete, and, and I was reminded of this the other day. If you look at traditional retirement planning done using just a normal financial planning segment, it basically, a client comes in, they go through the process, and because people are living so long, and most of them don't have pensions, and the life that they're living is more active than prior generations, they want to be more active and in the playground of life for a longer period of time than, say, my grandfather or your grandparents who were more used up and were just on the park bench. All of the dynamics around that mean that they're going to spend more money, they're going to live longer, they don't have a pension. And when you actually do the math of retirement planning in the traditional sense, the numbers don't work because we don't have pensions and we're going to be spending more. And we have all these other risks that we've taken on that past generations had a bigger social safety net with pensions, et cetera. So what ends up happening, and I know this because I was the one giving these choices, is most people are facing, hey, you're going to have to work longer or you're going to have to start saving more money now or you're going to have to settle for more money late, later in li- or settle for less money later in life or you're going to have to take more investment risk to work to make all of these numbers work or some combination of those four things and all those choices suck they detract from your life in some way there had to be a better way and I just saw people facing these decisions from this very binary way of thinking and, and spreadsheet way of thinking. I'm like, this, there's much more in between here to help people create an amazing life than just simply, no, you got to keep working. Yeah. Work more hours so you don't see your family because you got to make sure you're okay when you're 80. You know, that's not an option. And that's a, too often the option that a financial mindset gives people in retirement. In the context of retirement planning, is there a perfect age to retire? No. No. I would argue that I think retirement is not a great concept for almost everybody in the traditional sense. I mean, yes, you can go work without earning money, but happy people have projects. Not having something to do is a a good way to start to decay. Yes, I would totally agree. I'm about 10 years into quasi-retirement, and <laughs> and I'm still pretty busy. I am definitely a lot happier than if I would have come to full stop 10 years ago and spent the last 10 years sitting around not having a, a purpose in retirement. So I totally agree. Yeah, it doesn't um, have to do for money, too, right? It, 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 I mean, look at what you're doing as a service. And we could, you and I know a lot of people that are doing a lot of other things. That they're working their butts off and they're actually not making money at it. And they're not trying to make money at it. They're doing it because they're pulling threads that are interesting to them and serving. You know, this started, like I said, as a, as a result of prompting by you and, and other uh, members in the Rock Retirement Club it, w- it was a personal interest of mine, strictly for education, is to help educate my own kids. You know, hopefully at some point they listen to the podcast. Hopefully we'll, we'll help them and other people, uh, just just like you. That's kind of what it's about. It's not about 
monetizing it for me. Thank goodness I don't have to to try and monetize this for my day-to-day income. It, it would be pretty lean. <laughs> what do you feel are the three biggest advantages of working with a certified financial planner? And when's the best time to engage a financial planner? Is there a best time? And what are the advantages? So we're talking about just a certified financial planner. Or a retirement uh, planner. Yeah, let's stick with retirement because that's more what I think of. Um, when you are ready to actively think about that area of your life, I think is the best time to start searching. I think a good example is the normal way people find, say, my podcast is they're starting to think about retirement and they want to explore, well, what does that mean? What do I, what am I facing here? And usually that's, you know, when you read an article or you read a book or you listen to a podcast is when you're starting to, you have a spark that you want to explore it when I might transition. I think that's a good time. And the reason I say that, Pete, rather than, well, everybody should meet with a CFP early because they can help you optimize things, et cetera, which is true. But I was reminded the other day that the worst person to coach or to advise is somebody who's not ready for it. Because if you're not ready to organize your finances or explore creating a financial plan or roadmap, then don't do it because you're not going to be that engaged. I mean, you can test it, but the worst, you know, you get sort of a horse to water type of thing. I don't know if you've ever heard that old saying, when the student is ready, the master will appear. And yeah, and I think that's really the case. From your perspective, what are the, what are the biggest mistakes people make in retirement planning in, in that retirement planning process? Where are the cliffs that people drive off of? The biggest, well, I mean, the biggest one, there are so many. Yeah. Just like there is with anything. I think the, one of the bigger ones is, and this is an industry issue and immediate issue. So we naturally frame it as we think that it's an investment problem. We need to figure out an investment strategy. And that is what retirement planning is. And that is not what retirement planning is or, de- you know, decumulation planning. We tend to start at the wrong end of the dog, at the tail of how do I optimize? What's the right strategy I should think about? What investment strategy should I be doing? What tax strategy sh- should I be doing? And those are uh, tactics And that's usually where we start because they're more interesting. That's what we read about most. That's what people like to talk about. Rather than starting at the head of the dog or at what do I want my life to look like and then building a strategy and then going to tactics. So that's probably the biggest issue with everything in terms of decision making is usually we go tactics and then we backfill a strategy and we backfill what we want rather than going the other direction. I think we as consumers are taught to be more numbers focused. You you need to have this big a pile to be able to successfully retire. 
when once you get into retirement, then then that is probably one of your areas of, of the least focus. You focus on living day to day. So I totally agree. You've kind of created that type of a of a, a system with your agile financial planning process. In doing that, how does your process differ? The the agile retirement planning process differ from some of the other management styles and and other processes that are out there like safety first approach and those different things what's the the biggest difference or the primary difference i think we spend a lot of time on thinking about what we should think about and the the tactical operational things about that and not exactly how we go about doing things and so if you think of agile project management, which is where agile retirement management comes from, it is focused on how you actually go about making decisions rather than what those actual decisions are. So it's totally congruent, say, with safety first approach, because safety first approach is just really a strategy or tactic to retirement plan, just like, you know, systematic withdrawals are. They're no different. They're a tactic or a strategy, but the overarching structure of how you make decisions is really what agile retirement management's all about. Most people are, are a main concern of most people is running out of money. Everybody's always talking about what happens if we run out of money. How does that, how does the agile retirement planning process decrease that risk of portfolio depletion? You know, what, what we commonly term running out of money. Yeah. Well, let's get, let's get the, the risk of, of running out of the money out of the way. I had a meeting with a client last week, Pete, where we were having a discussion and one of the spouses is very sensitive to risk and running out of money. And so they asked me, are we okay? Are we safe from running out of money? You know, thinking long-term. And I told him, no, you're not. You might run out of money. We don't know. And the, and, and of course they were, that wasn't the answer they were looking for, but uh, uh, my favorite quote, Pete, by a gentleman named Phil Stutz says, you will never be exonerated from three things, uncertainty, pain, or the need to do hard work. Retirement, a modern retirement is full of uncertainty. Will I run out of money? Well, we don't know. We don't know what interest rates are going to be or what the markets are going to do or what health shocks you're going to have or spending shocks you're going to have. We don't know the entire path between now and when you leave this world. And we can, any, any attempt to try to eliminate uncertainty is going to cause us pain because you cannot eliminate uncertainty. Just like we can't eliminate the fact that pain is going to happen in our life and things are going to come at us. Or we can't eliminate the fact that we're going to have to do work. There is no, I found my strategy, I do it, and I'm set for life, and I never have to do anything again. Most of the pain that we inflict on ourselves are in attempt to get out of one of those three things. So where the way, the, the approach that we take using an agile approach is there is no perfect plan because there's so much, it's, a, it's such a multi- dimensional problem we're dealing with and we can't see over the horizon in our life or in the world that rather than try to eliminate or fit, 
uncertainty or actually figure it all out, which is what I tried to do for 20 years. That's why I have so many certifications. I kept wanting to get smarter. There must be an answer here. I got to figure this out. What I came to is that there actually is no answer. There is no perfect retirement strategy or process or investment or what have you. And so if you follow that logic, if you accept that, okay, there isn't an answer, nobody has it, nobody will, it's too dynamic. If there is no answer, then you need to release trying to figure it out or tame uncertainty. And you need to start thinking about what structure can I do to manage uncertainty over time, right? What little conversations can I have so I can see what's happening, identify risks early, identify opportunities early, and make lots and lots of little adjustments along the way as your path unfolds. And because we think that running out of money has to do with markets or sequence of return risk or interest rates, but a lot of it has to do with our spending and what we change, what you know, our changes and who we are in life. And so we approach it by how do you have structured little conversations that are really organized so you can continually refresh our understanding of how this will work. We, be, we build near-term certainty or confidence, and then we always set ourselves up to have some flexibility so as we start to see over the horizon, we can make these little adjustments. That's the only way I know how to do it. At the Rock Retirement Club meeting, I had a chance to, to speak with uh, Jim Sonier, who was one of your guests, and he uh, uh, hopefully will be a podcast guest of mine at, at some point in the future. But his particular focus is doing his minimum dignity floor. And, and his concept is we want to provide a fixed retirement income stream for those things. And then the rest of it constitutes a fund bucket. His idea is once those fixed costs are satisfied, then that releases people to be able to spend more in retirement, whether they want to spend it early or spend it late or not spend it at all. Where I think your process is is more continually refocusing or, or redrawing, you know, where you want to be at that particular time and where you want to go. Is, is that a, a valid uh, contrast? That's a good question. On the surface, I think it's a, it's a valid observation of the two different strategies. And I've gotten to know Jim uh, over the years and especially it, at the, the conference that we had. And our strategies are much more similar than I had originally thought. Because, you know, this minimum dignity floor of protecting a certain base income essentially to take care of, you know, the, you know, the housing and the food and et cetera. The way that he approaches it, he approaches it by doing some reserve funds on the front end where he's not actually annuitizing and buying guaranteed income sources. He's just doing a contingency fund on the side to maybe do that in the future. So in actually what he ends up doing is still giving themselves a lot of liquidity and flexibility. So as people are changing their minds along the way, 
I think, you know, a more deterministic strategy, the way you initially described it works. If you don't change your mind about a lot of things, the problem is people change their minds all the time on what they want, where they want to live and what that floor is. I think actually there's a lot of similarities between ours because the, the, it's really just a structured way of thinking about things. It's all going to change next year and the year after that. And because if he had, with Jim's approach, if he was go ahead and, and buying these guaranteed permanent solutions, say for that minimum dignity, dignity floor, uh, early in life, early in retirement, I'd probably be, I'm a little bit more worried about that because you're locking yourself into a pathway that you're trying to make a lot of assumptions about what your life's going to look like today, 30 years from now. I'd probably have a little bit more of an issue with that, but because he is really just doing a reserve for that minimum dignity floor later in life, it gives him a lot of flexibility. So I think it's just a different way of going about the same thing. Yeah, he's more agile than he would like to admit. <laughs> and I, I think most I think most good retirement planners are, but we don't have a word for it. We don't have a structure for it. And that's a lot of when we were de- designing agile retirement management. I'm not the only one doing it. We just don't have words for it. And I put a process to it. And personally, I, I like that process better. You bring future costs and future projects down to present day, you get a present day value. And to me, it gives you a much clearer picture because you're looking at the future, but you're looking at it today and you're looking at it with today's dollars. To me, it's a, it's a, it's a better visual picture. It's something that, that I appreciate and, and that works better in, in, in my mind that's clouded with a lot of, <laughs> a lot of <laughs> other things, but it, I, I do like that process. Pivoting a little bit in uh, November, actually this month, you authored, this is 2023, you authored an article for Forbes magazine and you you spoke about binary thinking and its adverse effects on retirement. Can you explain your explanation of binary thinking and how this type of thinking can alter or ruin a retirement? Yeah, binary thinking is a is a shortcut in a lot of areas in life right? He likes me, he hates me, right? The, you know, binary is one or the other, on, off. I'm going, in in retirement, the way I see it presents itself all the time, one is, and a lot of this happens, Pete, I think, because we're so financially focused, binary works in a spreadsheet really well, zero or one, right? Most of the answers to rocking retirement are not binary. So a couple examples, Pete, that that where binary thinking can get us in, into trouble with retirement is I'm going to retire or I'm going to continue working, right? I'm going to retire at 60 or I'm going to continue working to 63. That's a binary decision, one or the other. Or I am going to buy this house or I'm not. We'll stick with the the retirement at 60 or retire at 63. Well, there's a lot of in between there, right? You don't have to retire. You know, there's there's more than not working or working full-time in your career. There's working half-time in your career. 
There's working a quarter time in your career. And these opportunities are available more than ever before with employers and remote work, et cetera. There's also retiring, getting out of your career and working at Ace Hardware or wherever, where you're earning substantially less, but it's giving you other things. And if you make $200,000 a year working in your corporate job and you retire and you work at Ace Hardware and you make $20,000 a year, that seems like a silly thing to do, but Ace Hardware might be giving you a lot more non-financial benefits that your current career isn't. So those are some examples. And where those things come about are, that buys you more of your life. You know, if we go to the house example, and I've used this one before, I want to buy a lake house or I can't buy a lake house. And I had this, I had this happen a couple of years ago where a client wanted to buy a lake house out of the blue, by the way, literally came up in like two months after the plan had been in place for six months and we explored it. And at first blush, no, you can't afford to buy the lake house. And so we explored, why do you want to buy the lake house? And, you know, teased out, could you just rent one periodically and, you know, tried to get, find what they really wanted, but it ended up they wanted the lake house. And by not thinking in a binary way, it was, well, if we did buy the lake house, are you going to own two houses forever? No, of course not. I asked them that question. No, why would, no, we would want to do that in our seventies or eighties. We just want this because our grandkids are young and everything else. Okay. Well, if we start to, well, what if you sold one of the houses and repatriated that money to the financial assets at some point, does that make it work? And so we started to explore that thread. And at the end of the day, we could do it then. But if we just had stuck with, can I afford a lake house or not? Then the answer was no. But because we became, we got in between a little bit, it ended up being something they could do and they've already done. I think personally, I would be the anti-binary thinking hero as I've been retiring for almost 10 years now, in my personal experience, if I would have done the on or off light switch approach and, and just quit practicing 10 years ago, I think I would have found it very hard psychologically and, and mentally just to turn that part of my life off. And so for me, it's it's been a, a great source of, of joy and Actually, it's stretched me by going into other practices to help out. It's been uncomfortable because you get out of your comfort zone going into someone else's house and having to cook on their stove. But it's been very good. And so that non-binary approach has, has been very beneficial for me personally. And, you know, I, I totally agree. You bring up another point where this is a big benefit. One is it can get you more of what you want, right? Most people, and this is what one thing I learned from doing the podcast for nine years and being able to talk to thousands of people is when people, when I ask them what they mean by retirement, hardly ever is it the absence of work. What they, what the words that they use more, most often are, I just want some control of my time. I don't want to, I want some time freedom to be able to explore things other than my work. It's not the absence of work. And so if you can negotiate to half time or quarter time or 
a whole different side gig type of job, it can give you more time freedom because a lot of people love what they do. They just hate the pace of it, especially in the corporate world, right? So you can negotiate to buy yourself some more time freedom. So that makes sense financially. But what you hit on, Pete, that I wanted to point out was the other part of it. It's like when you're institutionalized in your work or your business and you're running at such a fast pace, going to completely off is psychologically, emotionally a a big change. It would have been traumatizing. Absolutely. Yeah. And and just from not going at that pace. And the other part of that is I call I call our ability to earn an income our superpower. And income is we equate it to power or agency, right? I've, I'm sure you have too, Pete. You've made a lot of big financial mistakes in your life, I'm guessing. I know I have. Absolutely. But as long as I've had income, I've been able to work my way out of those mistakes. And when I wanted something, you know, this goes back to when I got my first allowance and went and bought baseball cards. By earning income and getting that allowance, I had choices. I could use that money to buy baseball cards or Coke or whatever I wanted. It gave me power. It's your first real thing that you can do that nobody really has an influence over. Well, when you retire, you lose that income. Now you have what you have. And if you make a big mistake, you don't psychologically feel like you could earn your way out of it. You feel like you have less choices because you got to be, you got, you have, you know, you don't have income coming in that you can direct in different ways. You're not saving anymore, which is a nice positive feedback loop. So psychologically, it's a big, it's a big jolt for a lot of people. And I think this non-binary thinking gives you the training wheels that you spoke of. Mistakes hurt a lot more when you're retired because you have a shorter time horizon. You can't recover from those mistakes like you can when you're younger and it's a, it's just a little bump in the road. And then as you retire, then it becomes a mountain almost that's insurmountable. In your podcast, you've described yourself as an in, introvert, but you know, my assessment of you is that you seem to be very extroverted. Tell me uh, just kind of briefly about your journey from introvert to public extrovert and how you learn to be more comfortable when speaking and interacting socially. I've always been very comfortable speaking, like public speaking and things like that. I was in debate in high school, although I was horrible early on and had a, 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 a really transformative journey there of becoming good at it. But I've always been comfortable speaking in crowds. And so from that, I, don't, I guess it depends on your definition, doesn't it, Pete? So the way I think of an introvert is someone who builds energy when they're by themselves. And they have to recoup, whereas an extrovert is somebody who builds energy when they're around lots of people. That's a good way to think about it. That, that, that was the way that I understood it. And so I am definitely an introvert and I like my alone time. I have my habits. I have my journaling. I have my reading. I have my thinking. 
doesn't mean I don't enjoy people and I can't be extremely social. Like at the the conference, the roundup we had, I mean, we had 200 plus amazing people that all mm. are my friends in different ways. And it was incredible. But I always made sure I had time to go to a corner or back to my room to recharge. So that's the way I think of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. It's, it's, that's, that's a different way of looking at it. I've, I've not thought about introversion as just being alone to recharge by yourself. I, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it in that way. Yeah. My wife called, she, she can identify it. We've been married 30 years and it's, it's, it's funny. She can tell when I need to be by myself and she, I mean, he's, he, she'll call me a fussy baby. Like, oh, he's, <laughs> he, he needs, just let him go. I'll go off and go shop or something. Yeah. That's, that's one of the joys of being married. Once we all realize what the other one needs, right? I can take some time by itself. Right. Here's the last question and the biggest one. Describe Roger Whitney, the person, in 15 years. The person. Roger lives in Colorado. Is if you can get a house built. And we'll get it built. We'll get it built. <laughs> I got 15 years, Pete. <laughs> okay. But then you'll get it built. I'm <laughs> uh, living in Colorado. I'm still riding my mountain bike. I have a, the Rock Retirement Club is celebrating, I guess it would be 20 years. This is the fifth year this year. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, would have, and I'm still active in teaching and facilitating that. There's an advisory practice that is, has, is integrated and operationalized agile retirement management that I run, but I'm not necessarily doing all of the the one-on-ones anymore. I have a, my, my goal, I was talking about this the other day. This is sort of a sidebar. Is it okay to go here? Yeah. Okay. I was talking with my brother-in-law yesterday about artificial intelligence. So this is sort of a pivot, you know, the, these chat GPT and other things. And they're pretty incredible in what they can do in learning in text for sure. And it's probably coming to voice, et cetera. And we were talking about this, and this relates to the question, Pete, of 15 years from now, is that's really scary. It's exciting, but it's really scary. I already already think of the internet as one big sales funnel. Everybody's just trying to sell you something. If you read a review on a product, it's because they have an affiliate link and they want you to click and buy it. So there aren't very many safe places just to explore information and have adult discussions. And we were talking about this and going down some rabbit holes. And I always like to come back to when you start to catastrophize, what do I do now? And one of the conclusions I had yesterday that relates to this, Pete, hopefully it'll be quicker than 15 years, is one way that you guard against I think right now you should do it anyway, but against the world and AI in particular is to actually start to cultivate a life outside of technology. Because it, it, because it, I, we should already be doing this, but a life outside of technology is real. Reading a forum, being on Twitter or Facebook, that is not real. And I think, and so 15 years from now, 
and actually this year and next year, I, if I look at my life, I have amazing friends. I count you as a friend, Pete. I have very, very few friends locally because I don't do much locally. If you ask me, I don't have a robust community here locally. I have a bunch because I get to hang out with amazing people and my team is all remote and all over the country. And so I'm going to have a very robust community life in 15 years. I'll have it a lot sooner than that, but I got to make sure that that's a focus because that's real. And that's that builds up that social fabric and network where you get to help others. And when you're in need, other people can help you. And I think that has really lost its, I think many people have lost that because of just how the world's structured right now. Totally agree. It's been my wife and I's experience, and, and I did marry a younger woman. She's six months younger than me. She always reminds me of that. As we age, we find that our circle of friends has diminished. And of course, we've moved to a different community as older people. And it is harder to make social connections as you get older. A lot of the things that we discuss in the club, we found to be true. But I, I think you've found a, a very good community, although it is online. You have people that you relate to and people that you speak with every day. And, and so just like I said earlier in the podcast, it's been great for you your footprint has increased so much over the last, I guess, 10 years now, you said in your podcast. You've been able to reach so many more people and made so many more friends. I mean, I, I know if you sit there and just think for a second where you would be without what you've done and where you are now and all of the, the friends and wonderful people that have come into your life really is great. Just my limited exposure with my little podcast has brought me exposure to people that I would not have spoken with or, or interacted with otherwise. So uh, it, it's not a replacement obviously for personal connections, but, it, but it is, it is pretty nice. No, it's changed my entire life. And I get to reach people, right. And speak into their life. But the other part of it, which they don't realize because they don't have the microphone necessarily is so many have reached into my life via email or phone calls or random interactions that that's what it's supposed to be. Right. And you know, a lot of, and, and what you're doing is important, not to be just because you have a lot of wisdom in your voice, but, it's not about more. And I think of this from a financial planning perspective. Like if you look at my business, you know, I essentially run three businesses, right? We have a podcast, we have the club, and then we have our advisory practice. And I feel very proud that we are not trying to aggressively grow any of them. And I think that's a really, that's a feature, not a bug because all of my cohorts, especially in the financial planning business uh, is space, it always is about more. 
So we become a sales and marketing machine and planners as an afterthought. And the fact that I'm not trying to grow aggressively, which is what I wanted to do in my previous life, allows me to actually just serve and be a better planner. And I think we have, and I think that's where authenticity comes from because it's not about getting the sale or getting the client or getting the extra listener. You're actually just trying to explore these. And I think with what you're doing, you're doing this because you think it's important and it, you get something out of it, but you're not trying to get more so you can actually explore and be authentic. And I think that's important. That's well said, Roger. So if I could summarize that, I guess you're trying to say that it's very important to retire with enough. <laughs> uh, Roger, it's, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. And, and this is what I wanted this podcast to be. Roger does tons of podcasts. I've listened to a bunch of them personally. Some of them are very technical. Some of them focus on the financial planning side, the tactics, but not many of them really focus on just chatting and getting to know Roger Whitney, the nice guy that he really is. And so uh, I'm glad that you consider me a friend because I consider you a friend and I'm glad we finally got to meet in person and visit in person about a month ago after five years. So Roger, thanks for being my inaugural podcast guest. I really appreciate it. And I think that uh, my listeners will, will find this very enlightening. So thanks again. Thanks buddy. If you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to leave a review. And if you want to partake in an online conversation, be sure to search for the retiring with enough group on Facebook. Thanks. The information and opinions contained on this podcast are for general education and are considered general communications. Information on the podcast was obtained from various sources and retiring with enough does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information presented. Retiring with enough strongly recommends that you perform your own independent research and or speak with a qualified investment professional, legal advisor, or tax professional before making any financial decisions. The information and opinions expressed should not be construed as financial planning and does not consider the economic status or risk profile of any specific person, nor does it constitute an offer to buy or sell securities.